I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. said this before but the thing I love most about music apart from the music itself is who you get to meet through it the relationships that are forged I've made friends whom I now consider my extended family one of those people is the reason I know today's guest his name was Richard Antwi he unfortunately passed away a few years ago but he was a lawyer and my manager and became a really good friend He was instrumental in the careers of many artists. He signed the likes of Adele to her record deal. He also put some of the UK's grime artists on the map. Think Lethal Bizzle, Boy Better Know and Wretch 3-2. He also managed my guest today, singer Daly. My parents did listen actually to quite a lot of soulful stuff and good, really good vocalists. Like my mum had like Luther Vandross, Sade, George Michael, Mariah Carey, Shaka Khan. So... And those, a lot of those vocalists inspired me in, you know, early days. So when I discovered Prince about 16, I was just blown away. I just like couldn't believe the boxes that were being smashed, you know, with, with his music and more, more probably vocally for me. I was just like, it was just this moment. I was like, oh, you can do anything with your voice. Hailing from Manchester in England, Daly has one of those voices so soulful and a falsetto that's as clear as a bell. If you think I'm exaggerating, Quincy Jones and Stevie Wonder also agree. He has sung with both of them at their request. Daly even told me after our interview that he was at Stevie Wonder's house for Thanksgiving last year. I met Daly soon after he got signed and became his piano teacher. I was fortunate enough to hear some of his songs before they were released. Since then, he has gone on to record three full-length albums, worked with Pharrell, sung with the likes of Jesse J, Marsha Ambrosius of the band Flowetry, Jill Scott, Angie Stone, 
And as I mentioned, the legend that is Stevie Wonder. And he comes in and obviously he is, he isn't, uh, just as you'd expect, like such a warm person, like really nurturing and just like such a nice person. And he's like, okay, so let me, let me hear you and I. So he just sits down and starts playing it. And I just had to sing you and I in this room with like 40 people and Stevie Wonder. And I was like, right, you need to smash this. <laughs> you need to absolutely smash it. So I just like sang the heck out of it. And he's like, okay, so yeah, I'm going to take the first verse. You take this, you take that, you know. And um, yeah, and it was, it, was, it was really good. We talk about Daly's journey into music, the UK music industry's approach to R&B and soul artists compared to the States. But I still don't even think that translates still in the UK. I still don't think there's an appreciation, even though there's an appreciation in the States, I still don't think here we have the infrastructure to hold up, to uplift those artists. Even the channels that you would normally associate, like One Extra or the Mobos, the things that are supposed to be specifically there to uplift the genre, they don't always succeed because they, they have to cater to what's big, you know, whether it's grime or, you know, whatever. They have to focus on that, you know. Whereas in the States, it's like there's a whole infrastructure, a whole system of radio stations and award shows, and it's all if you want it to be, it's all specifically for R&B and soul. We talk about signing to a major label. We talk about hindsight, about finding your voice. We talk about career highlights, being creative in a pandemic, and trusting your instincts, even if it goes against the dominant voices in the room. Daily, thank you so much for joining me today to, to talk to me. I'm, I'm, it's so nice, it's been so long. I know, I know, it's, it's nice to see you and hear you. Yeah. So <laughs> we should backtrack and say how we met. We met through the late, great Richard Antwi. Yeah. Um, in fact, why don't yes. you tell the story? Amazing friend and manager. Yeah. So why don't you okay. tell the story? Um, yeah. So this is, I'm trying to think how many years ago it would have been. Uh, in, my, in my mind, it's not that long, but I think it probably is like maybe 2012, 13. I think um, Richard, um, yeah, Richard was uh, managing me um, and been managing me for a few years. And I decided that I really needed to brush up or not even brush up. I needed to just learn how to play piano. Mm -hmm. And um, you were his number one uh, suggestion, number one recommendation. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we got together. And you, um, I tried to be as consistent as possible, but slightly failed. <laughs> <laughs> But start, but definitely got a start on my um, piano uh, learning journey, and um, yeah, we just sort of became friends, didn't we? Really, just meeting up for lessons and then hanging out at various little music bits and bobs. Yeah, um, it's funny. I, 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 you're always the coolest person to come to to my house with your this elaborate curly mane of red hair that was always just like, and you were always in black, always in black. <laughs> Yeah, I did always, always used to. I didn't own anything that was that had any other colours in it. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I so, used to get the train up to Wilsdon, and yeah, exactly, exactly. But um, what it's funny. I was chatting with a friend, um, at I think a few weeks ago, and we were talking about male British male singers and how I missed amazing British male singers because. Yeah. For me, like in the UK, my favorite, I guess, you know, he's passed away was George Michael. Yeah. He was just, 
he has such a unique voice, but it's just such a strong, um, you know, he knew what he was doing with his voice. And I, the reason yeah. I said this is because I was bragging on Michael Bolton. I know everyone thinks he's cheesy, but the <laughs> man can sing. Really? I haven't really delved into that, into that catalogue, so... You need to go and listen to Time, Love and Tenderness. His vocal range is, I'd say, about three to four octaves. He's singing like two two octaves above middle C. Like inc- Incredible. Like go, Time, Love and Tenderness is my jam. So you need okay. to go listen to that. Okay, I've got to check that out. But I say that to say about your voice because, you know, you have such a a unique but strong voice. You have a really big range as well. Your falsetto. I know everyone talks about Justin Timberlake's falsetto. Forget it. <laughs> Daily's falsetto. So let's go back. And I want you to tell me how you ended up singing. Um, how did I end up singing? It was a, it's a, bit, a pretty gradual process. Um, I, I don't know if we've spoke about it before, but I don't have any musical background in my family. So no one in my family plays anything or sing well sings like sang professionally or anything it was just I think I think I did have a um my great grandma did sing but she wasn't like you know it was just a a a pastime type thing and uh so I didn't really come from musical background and um yeah I just was kind of told that I could sing very young just singing hymns in you know in school assembly or whatever and uh, it was a parents evening you know apparently they told my teacher, oh, yeah, he's got an amazing voice. And, I was, and then that was when I was like, oh, I've got an amazing, I've got a voice. I've got an amazing voice. Oh, <laughs> and and I'm how like, old were you? Probably about four years old. That's when it, that's when someone first sort of said it to me. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's young. And then obviously didn't think anything of it. And I didn't really have any, didn't even do anything until I was probably like 11 years old, where I would actually start sort of um, singing more, you know, going to like um, choirs and I went to like a part-time stage school type thing and um, just a really gradual process. And then I wouldn't say it was until I started writing songs that I actually became a singer, if that makes sense. You know, I was just, before that, it was just um, a bit of fun. And then when I when I started connecting the expression of writing, you know, songs to my voice and not just singing, you know, other people's songs, um, I'd say that's what that's when I kind of felt like I arrived a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I would say I'm like, I was like a bedroom artist, just listening to, as most people are, but listening to my favorite artists and just in the beginning, just emulating, replicating what they were doing. And then, and then as I say, once I started writing songs, you start to find where you sit, you know, in your own voice. So, so how old were you when you started writing songs? I think I wrote my first terrible song at sort of like 16, 17, maybe. Do you remember it? Do you remember the lyrics? Yeah, yeah I'm definitely you. not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no way, definitely not. Oh, actually, you know what? Yeah, I mean, no, I can't tell you that one because that was like literally the first song and it was it was called, I'll tell you what it's called, it's called Can't Be Wrong. Uh-huh. And to this day, my dad will still be like, when are you putting Can't Be Wrong back in the set? <laughs> well, now I need to know what the lyrics were. Like, give me like just a couple of lines. I can't. Um, it was just cliche, all cliches, you know, just, 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 yeah, I don't know what it was. Um, I literally can't even say it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, my first song that I wrote, I remember it. It was two chords. It was F major seven and G major, and it was called Part Time Lover. 
Ooh. It was, no, it was terrible. The lyric, I'm, I'm, I'm helping you so you don't feel embarrassed. My, yeah. The lyrics were, you're my part-time lover and I can't get you off my mind. So I've decided to tell you, I think it's time. You see, I gave you my heart and you, I think, well, I gave you my heart, but you took my love away and now I can't stay. Or what are these? It was like bad. But you know, Sounds you've got like to somewhere. Yeah, honestly, those lyrics you just said could be from Can't Be Wrong as well. So that's quite interesting. <laughs> it was that like, could be, you know, anything like that. But no, there was one song which I, I really class as like my first song. It's called Rainy Day, which I, because um, at that time, like this is way before we'd, I'd ever had like piano lessons or anything. So with that song, I was like, I think I just, I could find like two, I think it was literally just two chords and I was like, oh, that sounds good. And that sounds good. <laughs> just going back and forth and just like changing the melody. And then I was like, this isn't working for me. I need to, um, so I, I used to go on, um, it was like a, one of those MP3 download things, like LimeWire. And I just used to type in like jazz instrumental or like soul instrumental or whatever it was at the time that I was like looking for. Mm -hmm. And it would give me like a random selection of stuff. And, um, and I used to just write to instrumentals and I had no idea where they came from and obviously they weren't getting released, so it was fine. Um, but then one day I came across this song, this instrumental for, uh, by the Meters called Stormy. Mm -hmm. And it was like a, I think, yeah, it's, I think Stormy's, Stormy's a song that's been, I think, from like the 60s, like, like, that was covered by like a lot of, you know, like everyone used to cover the same songs and stuff like that. And I think this was their version. They did like a slowed down, um, just like live band version. And I wrote this song, Rainy Day, to that instrumental. And then that kind of, that was like the first time I wrote a song where I, was, I really felt like I'd hit the nail on the head in terms of like, putting what I was feeling and what I'd been through at that point, some kind of heartbreak, you know, into a song mm -hmm. and recording it down. And then I remember I played it for my mom and dad, who up until that point, I'd, you know, I played them bits and bobs and covers and they were just like, oh, it sounds lovely, you know. And then I just, I can't remember if it was my mom or my dad, but I remember they were sat there listening to it and they didn't say anything like the whole way. They were just like, and I could just tell that they were quite surprised, you know, that it, I think, that's why I was like, I think I leveled up a little bit on that song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I still sing that one. I'll, I, I will still sing that one today because it's not, you know, it's kind of still feels good, which is, mm. which is nice. So, so I'm trying to picture you, at what age are you a teenager at this point? Yeah, I was probably like 17, 18. Right. And so, so you're in, you're from Manchester, just for those who don't know, right? Yeah. So you're in Manchester, you're a bedroom artist. What music are you listening to? What's inspiring the, the songs that you start writing, like Rainy Day? Mm. At that time, I think I just discovered Prince around that age because I wasn't like, my parents did listen actually to quite a lot of soulful stuff and good, like really good vocalists. Like my mum had like Luther Vandross, Sade, George Michael, Mariah Carey, Shaka Khan. So and those, a lot of those vocalists inspired me in, you know, early days. So that was there, but they weren't really like music heads or anything. So, um, and I, they didn't listen to, strangely, they didn't listen to Prince. They didn't listen to Michael Jackson, which is like what a lot of people build their, you know, foundation of uh, musical inspiration on. But so when I discovered Prince about 16, I was just, 
just blown away. I just like couldn't believe the boxes that were being smashed, you know, with, with his music and more, more probably vocally for me. I was just like, it was just this moment. I was like, oh, you can do anything with your voice. Like you don't have to sing male quote unquote male songs, female songs. You don't have to be a certain range of vote. You know, you just can sing whatever you are able to sing, you know? And so, yeah, I just started going through all of Prince's catalog at once, not even by album, just like finding songs and just playing all the songs at the same time. And um, so I think that, that kind of started me to really made me change my vocal style. Cause before that I listened, I think I'd say George Michael was like, my vocal template mm-hmm. from a younger age and then I've discovered Prince and I was like oh my god you know this is just blowing my mind um and then I really liked like the commercial R&B of the time so like Brandy, Usher, Aaliyah, um who else and then that kind of led me into like Neo Soul um Jill Scott, Maxwell, Eric Badu, D'Angelo. So that was that was all kind of going on at the same time, uh, mixed with Prince, mixed with George Michael, mm-hmm. uh, mixed with like Image and Heap. I finally one day randomly discovered Image and Heap and I was just like, complete, again, just like it kind of shifted my whole mm-hmm. perception on sonics and vocal arrangement and things like that. Um, yeah, so that's what I was writing around that time. And that was... Just after that was when I moved down to London and met Richard and um, that song Rainy Day was actually the one that kind of got played in all the label meetings and kind of ended up getting me signed essentially. Really? So so you came to London, I'm imagining like Dick Whittington with your little stick on your back. <laughs> I'm, I'm, going, I'm going down to London to seek my fortune. Um, and so you arrive in London and are you looking for labels at this point? Like how, how did that work? Um, so I've met Richard. Richard contacted me through MySpace when I lived it in was Manchester. MySpace. Yeah, because I was on MySpace. That was like the thing at the time. You, know, you had to be on MySpace. And, yeah. Um, yeah, Richard found me on MySpace and we'd been talking. And then I think I'd, I was working as a web designer at the time. And um, I was just like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work here for three more months or six more months and save up some money. And I'm just going to come to London. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we just started developing things from there, really. Just uh, I did BBC Introducing, which is like wow. their you know, new artist platform. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of, yeah, I had a certain amount of money to last me, I think, three months in London. I had about three months worth of rent or whatever it was. So I was like, okay. I need to get signed in three, three months. And um, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty magical time. Cause it did, there was a lot of momentum and excitement and um, you know, it was just amazing working with Rich and the team that he had at the time. Um, so yeah. And it, that's kind of how I got started. Okay. And we should say for those who don't like Richard, um, he used to manage me. So Richard was a lawyer manager and um but he, unfortunately, he passed away about, was it like three years ago, I think? Yeah. Yeah. But he was someone that, he was so driven. I don't know anybody was that driven, actually. He's just like, got on with it. He used to manage Wretch 3-2 as well. 
Yeah. And um, I think, I don't know, I can't remember which way round whether he said, oh, can you give this artist piano lessons or whether he played me your music. But the thing that always struck me about your voice, and it's interesting you talk about George Michael and you talk about Prince because your voice is very clean. The, the sound that comes out when you sing a note is always just such a clean, beautiful sound. And George Michael, I keep thinking of the Bonnie Rayet song he covered, I Can't Make You Love Me. Mm, yeah. And it's just such a clean vocal, yeah. you know, just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Like there's, there's so much clarity in his voice. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't overly complicated. You know, it's, it's like, I feel like now, um, in certain circles, particularly in like R and B, there's just so much emphasis on riffs and runs, and which are great and so much fun and so powerful, and you know can really make you feel certain things. But yeah, there, I think there is something to be said for just like holding a note, a clean note with intention, you know, and like feeling. And I think yeah, that's what that's what I kind of really liked about his voice. Mm. And then, like you say, Prince has. I was talking about him today, actually. Prince has this, he, uh, yeah, I was teaching today. So we were talking about, Prince was talking about Purple Rain, how he has this way, his vocal range, his baritone is so baritone. Yeah. But then his falsetto is so clean, but he has grit to his voice. Like sometimes he sounds like yeah. you're in church, but then other times yeah. he sounds like a funk singer, like James Brown. He's just got, he had such... um such range in the truest and such color in his voice. Yeah. And he would take, yeah, that's why he, I like the way he would take you to this pretty sort of beautiful falsetto place in the clouds and then just slam you down into some grungy, like, yeah, almost like scary voice, you know, it's just, yeah, it's quite, it's quite a ride. Totally. So then you, your first um, album, your debut album came out in 2012, Those Who Wait. And you know, there is a song on there that I still sing, Those Who Wait. I love that song. When oh. I was a boy, I was always yeah. caught in the middle. <laughs> I was never yeah. a winner, just a loner yeah. in the crowd, looking for a way out. I still remember. Uh, yeah. When I was a boy, I was always caught in the middle. I was never a winner, just a loner in the crowd, looking for a way because you ended up was was that the album that Pharrell helped produce and you end up ended up in LA and all of that no that was actually before um before really I even ventured to the states so that was I eventually got signed to Universal um but it was a typical thing like you've heard it a lot before where it's just like there's a lot of hype and someone gets signed and then the label doesn't really know what to do because essentially now I look back on it what it was is they signed me for something which was being you know, a soulful artist with quite a 
unique voice. You know, I was kind of, I only had one song when I got signed, so I definitely wasn't signed for my catalogue. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was more for my voice and what, you know, I think what they envisaged me as being type thing. But then pretty much as soon as I got signed, it was like they wanted to do the opposite. So I would go away and do these sessions and write these songs. It's like quite R&B leaning or soulful leaning. And you play them to the A&Rs and they'd just be like, oh, that's cool, but that's not the direction, is it? And we're just like, me and Rich were just like, like, well, you know, just there was a, an air of confusion. And um, also I did this uh, song with the Gorillas around that time as well, which was, which I also think confused the label because it was, but it was a Gorilla song, even though I wrote it with them. It was a totally different sound, you know, it was Gorillas, so it was totally like alternative and, you know, kooky. Um, so I think that maybe confused the label as well. I think they all of a sudden thought I was going in this direction. Mm. Um, so basically, in a nutshell, me and Rich just ended up being like, let's just, just make the album that we want to make or that I want to make. And, you know, we'll bring it to the label and, you know, they've signed you, so they're going to have to get behind it type thing. Um, and that's where songs like Those Who Wait came around because it was... Um, it was literally me. I was renting a studio in Kensal Rise at the time. And it was just me sat there and uh, had an instrumental from this producer called Rich Kid from Toronto. And I just pulled it up and instantly it just, it kind of just came. The first verse just came and the second, the chorus. And it was just where I was at at the time, you know, feeling a little bit like in limbo with the label not really being supportive and just trying to keep on my track, you know, um, and have faith in what I was doing, you know. And, um, and so that was where Those Who Wait came from. And a few of the other songs on there were just like the, the products of my first few writing sessions with producers. And um, so, yeah, it was like my, it was kind of my first album, but it was like my practice album, I would say. Yeah, I, 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 it's very interesting. I want to talk a little bit about that, you know, the experience of an artist being signed to a major label. Because, you know, you've done collaborations with some big artists, Marsha Ambrosius from Floetry, Jessie J, Jill Scott. So you have been around, you know, you've done, and, you know, like again, like you've done stuff with Pharrell. But this sort of space where you're in, where you're in a, you're signed to a major label, and I've heard this story so many times, where they don't know what to do with the artists because they need, in some ways they need you to tell them what to do, but then they, they can't think out of the side of the box either because it's a business. It's not really a creative space. It's a business. So how was it for you? Was it that they, they wanted to market you as an R and B singer and you were like, no, I want to sound like this. Where, where was the conflict? I think the conflict was just that they signed me because um, they knew there was something there and there was a buzz and I don't feel, you know, obviously I'm biased because it's me, but I don't believe it, it wasn't like a fluffy, like there's an emperor's clothes buzz. Like I think people did see and feel something, you know, from my voice and my live performances and the songs that I had at the time. Um, but I just think with it being the UK and it being, it was Polydor at the time. So it's like a pop label it was like there was a bit of a clamor to sign me between a few labels and I think they like they just they wanted to get me but I, to me now looking back it's like they got me and they were like oh but we actually don't know how to do this like we don't actually know how to nurture an artist like this because um I sometimes wonder because one of the other labels that was um 
really it was neck and neck between Polydor and Ireland and I actually now think Ireland would have been a much better choice because they just understand they would have understood what I was doing Mm -hmm. I think a lot a lot better but um but yeah it was um it was just that they were second guessing I feel like everything that we that I did if they just run with it like there were some really strong songs on that project and I think if they just run with it as a as an introductory project to establish a foundation even if it is as, a, as an R&B artist if they wanted to take me if they wanted to make me a mainstream pop artist further down the line then you know that might have been possible but they think it still would have started with creating that foundation you know and um that audience but they were just second guessing every move every everything that now I know we should have just pushed ahead with at that time it was there was a second there was like this caution from the label mm-hmm. um and I think that is to do with it being in the UK because at that time I hadn't even been to the US I had no US connections so and it is it's, it's like that question of like where R&B and soulful music sits in the UK because it's it's I think it's better now but it's still still not like totally accepted you know you still have a lot of awards shows that don't even have the category or they don't televise the category and you know I mean you've got one extra which is obviously a great support for anything related to black music but that was kind of it you know I think had I got signed in America to begin with I think it could would have been a whole different thing um because when I did eventually get signed in America it was a whole different thing (laughs) um and, and the song that I did with Marsha Ambrosius um, called Alone Together, that took off immediately at radio and they and they saw, they understood it and they just, you know, they put the resources behind it, sent it out to radio and it was a, it was a top five radio song in America. So I think, yeah, I think that that early stage was just inhibited by this UK label trying to understand where a white guy singing soulfully sits if he's not... Um, well, Ed Sheeran wasn't even around at that time, but if he's not like the male Adele, you know, that's that's the only way that they could make sense of it. It's like, okay, is he like the male Adele? You know, and it's like, well, not really, but if that's how you need to <laughs> process it, then. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. And I'm trying to think, even as you're talking, I'm trying to think of UK R&B and I I honestly I can't think of I'm I can only think of like really mainstream poppy stuff that has a sprinkling of R&B which is not what you do um I'm thinking of people like I don't know Little Mix or which has got a sprinkle of R&B but it's not that's not what you do you know well I mean the only references at the time was like Craig David um I mean, quite literally, it was like Craig David, and then it was like, and then you've got like Beverly Knight, Misha Paris, Sade, um, Terence Trent Darby, you know, Seal. But it was, it's not really. Some of those were obviously a long time before, you know, me getting signed and stuff, and they weren't all part of the same movement. They were all quite spaced quite far apart. So they were really, yeah, it was just, it was a, it's a weird. It was a weird kind of uh, time to um, to be an R and B artist. Yeah, <laughs> in and, the UK. and I think you know the the phrase hindsight is twenty twenty is a real thing because you're mm. talking now with 
a different kind of maturity, a different kind of understanding. And when you're in it, and it's like, this is your first foray into the music industry. And you're kind of like, I'm just here because I like this music and I just want to make this music. I'm not thinking, oh, how am I going to market myself as a white Mancunian who sings? That's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, this is the music that I love and I just want to make it. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before and I mean, this is, it's quite hardcore, but I remember this, somebody sent me an artist who was, um, she was Nigerian and she was signed to, I'm not going to say the label, but she was signed to some label and they didn't know what to do with her either. And I remember she came to me and I was so incensed. She came to me and said, yeah, you know, I'm dark skinned, so they don't know what to do. And I was like, sorry, what? You know, and, and in the end, she, um, she left the industry because I just don't think she could, it just knocked her esteem too much. And if you're having to advocate for yourself, because because they were like oh they kind of think of me like Tracy Chapman I'm thinking the only reason they think of you as Tracy Chapman is because you have the same complexion there is no other connection to um well I can't I can't even um imagine like I mean I'm you know saying that there was a bit of confusion in just terms of the sound that I was going to get but I mean I can't imagine sitting down with someone and and being told that I don't know if you're saying they, they were told her that or if that's just what she got the impression of but either way to you know for that to be for the for the tone of her skin to be like the reason why they don't know what to do or the reason why they can only think of one possible template or other you know artist to to liken her to um yeah but it does sound very uk to me you know it's a very uk music industry thing or at least it was at that time yeah it is and you know and i think in well in some ways we the uk innovates in certain musical genres you know mm. garage has come from here grime has come from here you yeah. know brit pop and like oasis that kind of sound that's so british even even um yeah. you know the beatles there are certain sounds that people might have drawn from abroad but it's so uniquely british but yet at the same time the ability to think outside the box when something is presented that isn't what they're used to is not it's not a strong point um in the industry in this country i mean even now because i've obviously I, i was living in the states for the last five years but i'm back here now because of covid um but i would say even over there in in the states there is more um like British R&B artists are very, and not just, and obviously not, don't mean white R&B, I mean like any, whatever race, but British R&B yeah. um, is considered, you know, they they absolutely love it. You know, they just, there's so many artists that are like doing well and people really, that every time they put, what is it in the UK? Why do they have such, you know, dope, soulful artists? And I'm like, well, you're from America. Like you have more, <laughs> you have more of those artists, but they love the, our take on it you know and um but I still don't even think that translates still in the UK I still don't think there's an appreciation even though there's an appreciation in the states I still don't think here we have the infrastructure to hold up to uplift those artists because even even the channels that you would normally associate like one extra or the mobos the things that are supposed to be specifically there to uplift the genre they don't always succeed because they have to they have to cater to what's big, you know, whether it's grime or, you know, whatever. They have to focus on that, you know. Um, whereas in the States, it's like there's a whole industry 
whole infrastructure, a whole system of radio stations and award shows. And it's all, if you want it to be, it's all specifically for R&B and soul, you know. And that's, I think, why I've kind of flourished over there more because there's been a place for me to be accepted and be appreciated and, and stuff like that. Yeah, well, it's so interesting because t- tell me about moving to the States because, you know, you talk about the song you did with Marsha Ambrosius. She's also British. Phenomenal voice as well. Um, how you moved to, did you move to LA or to New York? Uh, well, um, I kind of did it in stages. So when I worked with Marsha, when I, I, I started just traveling over there again with Richard, we spent like so much time just on planes, just going over there for a couple of months, coming back. And yeah, we did like trips to New York and LA um, and doing like writing sessions and things like that. And then I didn't actually move to LA until, yeah, I didn't move to LA until 2014 um, or 15. But yeah, so I was kind of traveling around a lot um, doing like trips, extended trips to places to do songwriting. Um, And that's when I connected with Marsha through, I think just mutual mutual friends um and they were just like do you want to do a session with this with the girl from flow tree they didn't even say a name i'm just like the girl from flow tree well there's two girls in flow tree but do you mean Marsha or <laughs> and um anyway so yeah and i was like of course like because i was a big flow tree fan as well um and yeah we just got together at the studio in new york and um and alone together was the song that, that came from that session and it ended up being a really special one. You're almost exactly what I need. A definite maybe. It's short to entice my curiosity. I can't help but think that this doesn't matter. I'm trying to separate the from all the fiction We're living in a world of contradictions And if baby you're the truth Then I'm lying next to you And you're the desert sand I'll be your water And you're the perfect plan I never thought of I don't want to do this on my own And you shouldn't have to be alone I would rather So tell me a little bit, little bit about your process because you you talk about writing sessions. Are you coming to the session with songs in mind? Are you at the piano a little bit? How how does that work a little? How does that work? Yeah, usually, um, usually I keep a book. Well, now it's a note, a note file on my phone, but um, of like either song titles which have no songs yet, just the titles or obviously lyrics, if I've got pieces of lyrics that I've written down. And then um, I usually just have that there. And then as, and then I'll work with a producer usually um, to start putting together the music or at least the structure of the music. And yeah, usually I lead with melody. Mm-hmm. So just coming up with melodies that, that feel, that make me feel something. And then sometimes lyrics come out while I'm doing the melody. And sometimes I have to just kind of browse through my, browse through my book and like see and sometimes things just fit you know um I would say that's the way I do it most of the time unless I've got like something really that I'm just 
I need to write about. I've already, you know, I might have already written the verses or the chorus or something like that. Um, so yeah, I usually lead with melody. I work with someone who's a bit of a better sort of player than me to to flesh out what the chords are going to be and things, and then um, get the melody down and get try and start finessing the lyrics as well. Okay, and um, yeah, and and off the back of that, you have. You have Days and Nights that came out in 2014 and then the most, well, you have the Spectrum that came out in 2017. Yeah. And then you've just released a new single, haven't you? Try the line, try brackets the line. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was just, uh, well, that wasn't just, it was, it was a bit of a triumph, a lockdown triumph because it was, um, it was actually for a COVID-19 sort of charity album, which, was called Alone Together, which was a bit confusing because that's the title of one of my songs, but um, it was a collaboration album. So it was like was it 40, 40 or 60 artists from literally all over America, the UK, Europe, and in teams of like three or four, um, and everyone had to write a song mm-hmm. remotely. So um, I wrote it with um, my guitarist, Charlie Laffer. Uh, he's part of... Um, production duo called Bad Fruit Um, and we yeah we put the song together all completely from our own homes without even sort of meeting up with each other Um, and it got released as part of that album so it wasn't like an official single but it was definitely nice to to kind of be able to release something this year and just uh, and it was kind of based on the mood of the of the moment in the first lockdown so yeah and I I I I always wonder, you know, when you're doing writing sessions, I'm kind of jumping around a bit, but writing sessions when you're introduced to so many different producers, is there a way of working? Do you have like a way of working with some people that just really, really works for you? I'd say my process is is kind of based around that, the one that, that I just described with like starting with melodies and gradually putting together lyrics and working on structure of the song. But um I would just say that that comes easier. It's easier with some producers than it is with others, I would say. So um, especially when I was doing my first album, they were, cause it was label assisted as well. I was just in sessions literally every day, maybe a different person every day, maybe every two days. So it did get to a point where I was kind of burnt out because it's just like, didn't have any ideas <laughs> by the end of like two or three weeks. I was just like, I don't even know what, you want me to say at this point but um but i'm working with a producer at the moment in in london called swindle who i don't know if you've heard of but you might actually i think you might really like it because it's very very eclectic and it's very uk and he's he's just one of the best people i've ever met he's just such a nice guy um met him in like 2010 and um his he's had like a production background in like grime pretty much and so like quite hard production um and then but he's he loves jazz he's just like a complete jazz head mm. and funk and r&b and soul mm. he's he's like a i always say he's like a young quincy jones that's the kind of vibe he gives wow, me just so in terms of yeah just in terms of the way he likes to arrange things and so imagine like a young quincy jones with a grime background <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah eclectic is the right word 
yeah and he's so he does such amazing music with he does his own artist project with like and he just brings everyone together rappers singers songwriters musicians and um so he's someone i work with really well because he's just so relaxed about the process you know it's i think it's nice when you work with people who just have faith that whatever's going to happen you know that there's no big huge goal like you don't have to write a smash you know what I mean you don't have to write a hit whatever that means it's just like whatever is going to be is what it's going to be and everybody's in there with really good intentions and um so I find that my process works really well with him because just the way that he puts songs and tracks together and the speed that I'll write ly lyrics and melody you know it just works so great yeah well I was like when you were describing your early stages of being with a different uh, producer crew, every, producing group every day. It sounds like speed dating. And I just yeah. don't know how you can connect. If you're trying to make music and you want to make music with meaning, you're not doing music by numbers. You do yeah. have to have some kind of, I feel anyway, have to have some kind of connection with the person or the people that you're making the music with. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it did get, it did become really exhausting. Like at that time, um, it was literally speed dating because it's just like, let's just hope that like one of these producers ends up being the one that you kind of like really connect with. But, and I did meet some amazing producers that way. There's a, um, a producer called Andre Harris, who's based in LA and he's done like, he did all Flowetry's stuff. He did Jill Scott's first album, did a bunch of like Usher's, I think he, did, he worked on Usher's Confessions album. And he's literally worked with like everybody in, 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 on other songs. And um, he's like one of my other longtime producers. So there were, there were some good things that came out of it. Um, but yeah, it's a bit creatively exhausting when you speed dating. <laughs> so you, I've, I've mentioned some of the people that you have sung, sung with, uh, Jesse J, who, phenomenal singer. Marsha Ambrosius, another phenomenal singer. Jill Scott, another phenomenal singer. But then you've sung with Stevie Wonder. Oh. <laughs> which is like, so I, I want to hear a little bit about that because, well, it's Stevie Wonder, so. Yeah. I know. I mean, that's that's one that I'm still, I'm still like, did that really happen? Like, it's just, it was so, and it was so out of the blue. It was, um... Cause I, I had never met, I'd never met him. I had heard that he liked my music through some other people. And I was obviously just quite happy with that knowledge <laughs> yeah. um, for, for a long time. And, um, and he owns a radio station in Los Angeles called KJ, KJLH. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he owns it. He's not there. He's not, he's not running it. He's just, he owns it. And he's, um, and I'd been there a few times to promote singles and things like that. And, um, and this was just like a routine kind of promotional thing on the drive time show went down, um, just to talk about my single and talk with the host and everything. So we're there and I'd literally just been in my PJs like all day that day. I don't know what I was just obviously had a day off and it's like, Oh, you've got this interview at KJLH. So just like, you know, so I just tidied myself up a bit and <laughs> went down to this radio and then I've been on air for maybe, half an hour mm -hmm. and getting ready to wrap it up and um the host is like oh before you go daily we've got a caller i'm like oh okay and it's like okay putting it through now and um 
and this weird like British accent was like, hello, Daily. <laughs> and this is like live on air. And I'm just like, oh, hi, you know. And he's like, do you remember me from London? We was in a band together. And I'm, I'm just thinking, oh, who's this weirdo? I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to play along and just sort of, you know, style it out because this is live on radio. I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, oh, what's your name again? And, and um, I was just totally confused. And then all of a sudden, just the tone in the voice started to sound really familiar. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and it just dawned on me. And then I remembered it's his station. And I looked at the host of the show and she was like, looking at me as if like, yeah, have you got it? And um, yeah, so I just on air, I'm just like, oh my God, is this, Steve, is this Stevie? And yeah, um, it was just a very surreal moment. And he, he just asked me on air if I would come and perform with him at this, um, he was doing like a charity concert at the Staples Center. And I was just like, I had a show, I was supposed to fly back to the UK the day before it to do a show in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I was just like, sorry, Birmingham. Yeah, Stevie <laughs> Wonder's off. calling. <laughs> yeah, show's sorry. off, sorry. Um, yeah, so, yeah, and that was kind of like the introduction, getting like prank called by Stevie Wonder. In the introduction, has he prank called you since? No, he's not prank called me since, but he has called me since, thank God. <laughs> so what did you sing with him when you were on stage? We did You and I. Oh my God, what a beautiful song. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was really, it was, it was definitely one of the best moments of my life. Just the whole experience and, you know, going down to the rehearsal, absolutely, can't say the word I was going to say, but, you know, and peeing my pants. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, with his band, like whatever, his 25 piece band and they, and he comes in and obviously he is, he isn't, uh, just as you'd expect, like such a warm person, like really nurturing and just like um, such a nice person. And he's like, okay, so let me, let me hear, let me hear you and I. So he just sits down and starts playing it. And I just had to sing you and I in this room with like 40 people and Stevie Wonder. And I was like, right, you need to smash this. You <laughs> <laughs> need to absolutely smash it. So I just like sang the heck out of it. And, um, and he's like, okay, so yeah, I'm going to take the first verse. You take this, you take that, you know. And um, yeah, and it was, it, was, it was really good. That is, that's a beautiful story. And I, it's funny because I, I think of artists or people that I just would love, love to meet, to meet or have seen live. Mm. And most of them aren't alive anymore. Like yeah, I, I would love to have seen Nina Simone live. Oh, yeah. And and I would have loved to have seen Bob Marley live, actually. Right. Yeah, that um, would be such an experience. I mean, yeah, I've heard like this. Well, I've watched so many like footage, so much footage of it, of him live. Mm. I would have just loved to have been there. But yeah. Stevie Wonder is one of those people that's still here that yeah. you just think, gosh, him, him and Quincy Jones are probably my and, and Herbie Hancock, Herbie Hancock as well. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I be another, can I name drop another name? There? Name, name, please drop as many names. I would be name dropping if I had Stevie Wonder. Go on, drop some more. Well, uh, was it the same year or the following year? Um, I got asked to do uh, Quincy Jones. I think it's every year, but obviously not this year. It does, um, 
he does a show, a tour in Europe where he does all his catalogue, which is yeah. most, you know, a lot of Michael Jackson's catalogue, but um, with an orchestra in like an arena tour. And I got, a, I got a email to ask if I would do the London show with them. Wow. And yeah, that was another, like that was just after the Stevie Wonder thing as well. And it was just, that was another thing. Very similar, obviously, because like the caliber of, of his legacy just to be like involved. Um, so I got to sing uh, Human Nature. Which is also a great tune. Yeah, just beautiful. It was just, oh, and in, you can imagine an orchestral arrangement of it as well was just amazing. Uh, so I sang Human Nature, She's Out of My Life, Michael Jackson, and I did a duet of um, I Just Can't Stop Loving You. And that was with Quincy. So there was, that, was, that, yeah, that was a pretty incredible 12 months, you know, of just kind of making me feel like I was doing something right. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, because those, those guys, when they spot talent, they know what they're talking about. Yeah, literally. And I was like, I just at that moment, I was like, I do not care if I ever get mentioned or nominated for a Grammy or a, I, do, I don't, any, no one can tell me anything now. Like there's no award, there's no review. Like these two men, you know, trust me enough to sing their songs with them. Amazing. That's it. That's all I need. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. No, I mean, well, now it's just like, you're like, okay, I can just go home now. Yeah, basically. Something to tell your grandkids forever. So I, I always like to ask people, and you've actually been really, said some really interesting things already, but I like to ask people what lessons you have learned that we can learn from. I think the one I always come back to, which goes back to like having the hindsight of looking back on from where I, when I started, is I wish I had not, or no, I wish I hadn't. Um, don't second guess your gut feeling like don't always assume that someone else knows the answer better than you you know I mean sometimes they do if it's you know something that someone really specializes in and they've got loads of experience in marketing or this or that but I've noticed through my experience that a lot of things that I knew I, you know I knew how I wanted something to be or how it needed to sound or how it needed to look but I would sometimes have deferred to other people because they seem like they were the experts or they, they just, you know, I kind of made their opinion more important than mine. And I think as an artist, you just, yeah, I would say don't do that, whether it's a creative decision or even if it's like a, a strategic decision or something, just think about what's right for you. Cause you actually know that even if you haven't got the experience of being some kind of executive or marketing or a big time producer or a songwriter, if you know what, what resonates with you, and what suits your sort of journey, then um, I would say go with that. Because I think there's, there's definitely been times when I've hesitated and kind of deferred to someone else and then hated what they suggested or what the outcome was based on what they did. So I'm like, yeah. So I don't know how to summarize that. Maybe just to trust your gut feeling and um, don't defer to other people 
unless you really feel it in your gut, you know, you like, you really don't know what you're talking about and you want someone to help you, but yeah. That's, that's a really good thing. And I think the challenge with the music industry, and if you are, you're just starting something. So you, do, it's still a world that you're trying to navigate. Learning how to self-advocate is really tricky because you're kind of learning on the job. Yeah. And also learning how to, um, and then learning how to stand your ground when you self-advocate. Because sometimes you're like, I know this isn't right, but if you're surrounded by lots of other people who are like, no, 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 you should, you should, you should. And they come at you with all of these things. It can be really difficult. And it's why you need strong teams and, um, you know, I remember once Richard took me to this interview at Universal with this, I mean, it was the weirdest interview. And I was like, what is this? And he was kind of just, the guy was just schmoozing me for like 45 minutes. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't. And I remember Richard and I, we kind of had a disagreement in the car. So I was like, I can't do this. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. Mm. But I, I, yeah. I think it, th- there is also this thing you have to, you have to decide. Part of it is deciding what you want because I think when people, if if you're someone that's like, okay, I want to be a megastar. That is my my main aim is to be a megastar, and then so I'll do some albums I don't particularly love, but at the end of it, I'll be famous and I can choose. You know, they'll be like, you do just do what we say for the first two records, and then it's yours, right? Yeah. If you're, however, someone that knows you're like no I really really want this I want this sound it can mean compromising being known by lots of people and sometimes you have to I I mean I think we're now in a stage where um, artists have more control because of the internet because of social media I mean I I I, there is a actually a really good um, desert island discs on radio Four with Ed Sheeran and he talks about how nobody wanted to sign him because they're like, how do we sign a, this redhead who looks like this? They just couldn't work it out. But because he kept gigging so much and he said he would go and do gigs in the sort of R&B places where Jamie Foxx would do stuff in Los Angeles. And he'd be the only white guy there playing his songs. He'd built a following that way. And then the, the record labels came to him afterwards. Yeah. I mean, he he really did because he was me and Ed were actually playing some of the same shows. Like I did a show with Ed Sheeran to a hundred people at the Lyric Hammersmith in like one of their small little, you know, not the not the theatre, but just the little small room where they do the you know the smaller productions. And I remember, like, I literally remember that. And Ed used to smash it every time. And but he was doing. He, I was like, I remember thinking. He was on every show, like every show that was happening, he was on the bill at this certain time. And I was like, okay, I'm on like three of these shows, but he's doing like, these do like 15 shows this week, you know? And um, he really, and that's why I had to really give him his props. And I think he deserves really, you know, everything that he's got because he was just relentless at that time in making sure that people were hearing him and, you know, and obviously then he went to the States and kind of did the same thing. So, um, yeah. Interesting. So, what's next for Daily? What's next? Well, twenty twenty has been a strange year. It's been a it's been a strange year for just I think motivation and general inspiration. I thought it was like, oh great, I've got like unlimited amount of time to sit in my room and just write, write, write. And it's not always, you know, you can't always do that. But um, yeah, I'm just kind of in the middle of the next album or the next project. 
Fantastic. And uh, like I said, I'm working on, on it with this producer called Swindle. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I've got like a load of unfinished songs, like half-baked that need to be, I need to have some discipline and sit down and finish them off. But um, yeah, just really getting ready for that. Just trying to get everything nailed down and, um, you know, keep bringing through a lot of the elements of that I have in my other music and the soulful element and the vocal presence and stuff, but just working with Swindle is bringing it a, a different energy production wise. And nice. um, yeah, and I am like now, especially after this year, I'm just like, please just, I need that new, new music energy, you know, just that, mm. that new intake of, of musical kind of feeling. Mm. Um, but it's funny, I know what you mean because the other day I was just remembering how much I love music. And sometimes when you're working at something, it's not that you don't love music, but you're in a different headspace. And sometimes yeah. you need to get into a place where you're listening to stuff and being amazed by the fact that we all have the same amount of notes. Mm -hmm. And there's just, there is the opportunities to create sound are endless, even though we're all working with the same amount of things. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Falling in love with music again and and listening to how things are done and why something is working and all of that stuff. Sometimes you almost, I sometimes, I, I'm learning to, well, it's a bit of a dance, isn't it? Because sometimes I think you have to be disciplined and you just have to sit down and do something. You just have to do it, you know, even if you don't yeah. feel it. And then other times you have to listen to your, like you're talking about trusting your gut. You have to listen to yourself and just be like, okay, right now I can't make anything. But, but listening to other people and being inspired by other people somewhere, it's feeding itself into me and it's going to impact what I create at some stage. And that's okay. Yeah, definitely. And I would say that, um, yeah, sometimes, uh, like I haven't listened to a lot of new music this year. I don't feel like I have anyway. I've been like veering towards a lot of just music with no lyrics, you know, just like, just to try and detach from any, thoughts of songwriting or mm. lyrics because it's sometimes as I'm sure you know it's like can be hard to switch off the mm. creation mode when you just want to listen or whatever so um yeah so I've yeah I've been sort of trying to take in things but not by listening to songs <laughs> well that's perfect you're leading me perfectly into my last question what music are you listening to that has no lyrics <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, what am I listening to? Um, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of film scores and classical stuff. Sometimes it's a bit random. It's just if I hear things that I like and, um, but that's been quite good. It's kind of made me feel quite calm throughout, you know, some of the weird moments in the year. But, um, something that really, really, that I really enjoyed this year was, um, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. Mm -hmm he does a lot of scores now and he um he scored a film called the phantom thread okay and oh, with um what's his name daniel day lewis that film is it daniel day lewis uh to be honest i've kind of forgotten about the film now because i just, <laughs> just love the soundtrack so much but it's a good film though I'm, i can't remember who's in it um but yeah and it's just got some of it's really dark and a bit bizarre but like, um, it's just got some beautiful 
uh, soundscape slash classical pieces in it. And um, yeah, it's just gorgeous. Just like gorgeous arrangements and instrumentation and no lyrics. <laughs> um, so I've been listening to that. You just like putting it, getting on my bike and going for a ride and just listening to that and pretending I'm in a film. <laughs> nice i love that um, uh, sorry go ahead uh no so i was gonna say yeah that that was definitely something and things like that just other i think sometimes listening to film scores is a good way to transport out of reality because it will take you to a, a different a different place um in terms of albums the the last album i bought was roisin murphy mm-hmm. um she just released an album called roisin machine totally different but um but I actually really like I don't know if you know know her music much to be honest I kind of only know her from the big tune is it the Maloko tune bring it back yeah Yeah, that's kind of rare I only know her sort of from that but yeah I mean that's yeah that I mean I don't I wouldn't say that's like typical of of her because even that song was a remix it was a they remixed that song for that single so um but she's just yeah she's just a great artist who's just doing whatever the hell she wants, you know, and it's, um, it's just fun. It's kind of like clubby, kind of dancey, but in a very cool way. Like you can tell that she's got some cool references and influences. Um, so yeah, that's the last album I bought. I'm just looking through my library now. Everything else is just like a few singles here and there and classical pieces and um, yeah. That's a good, I've not heard the Johnny, I know the film Phantom Thread, but I haven't sat and listened to the the score what i was listening the other day well i go back and listen to it all the time some of the score nicholas Bretel's if if bill street could talk all right oh my god it's just stunning 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 and um you know if you like classical music um do you know the movie a room with a view it's like really quite old it's like a um, Merchant Ivory film with Helena Bonham Carter when she was like 19 or 20. But the score right. is beautiful. Oh, okay. What's it called? Let me, uh... A Room with a View. It's got like, um, it's classical music, but it's got opera in there as well. It's a really, really, and it's mostly set in Italy. And I and I listen to that when I'm working. Um, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of instrumental music when I, when I have to work because I can't listen to words. I have to listen to instrumental. Yeah. So that's a good, and there's also... Um, Mendelssohn, yeah. um, Daniel Barenboim, the pianist, has a great um, plays Mendelssohn's Lieder ohne Worte, songs without words, beautiful piano music as well. But I'll send you them. I could go on for ages. Yeah, yeah, please do. I'm always because it's kind of it's kind of hard sometimes, or at least for me anyway, to discover unless I see a film or I see or as a composer where I just like look at their other work. Sometimes it's hard to get from one thing to the next you know because it's yeah. not like there's a chart for that kind of stuff it's just <laughs> yeah um yeah so any recommendations definitely i will i will send them to you but daily thank you so much for taking the time i'm looking forward to hearing your new stuff yeah i'll definitely i'll send you a preview oh <laughs> i'm looking forward to it thank you so much oh yeah thanks for having me Strive for the future and everything that could be
Thank you so much to Daily. It's always wonderful to reminisce and talk about making music with friends. If you haven't done so already, follow Daily on Spotify or wherever you stream your music. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter. Daily also has some great live performances on YouTube. Well worth heading to his page to take a look. He even has the clip of him being prank called by Stevie Wonder on there. All details are in the podcast blurb. This is our last episode until the new year. We're taking a short break over the Christmas period. I don't know about you, but I need to do absolutely nothing but watch cheesy Christmas movies and wake up without an alarm clock. I'll be posting a little Merry Christmas video on my Instagram page where I'll recommend some things to watch and read and music and podcasts to listen to. And if you haven't done so already, you can go back and listen to some of the Holding Up the Ladder episodes you may have missed this season. There are some really great conversations on there. As you know, Holding Up the Ladder is available on all the major streaming platforms. Share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. You can also donate if you feel like leaving us a little Christmas present. Just click the link below and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Holding Up the Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. And I'd also like to give a little shout out to a new member of the team, Susan Chibarije, who's responsible for all the social media this season. She has saved me a ton of work. So thank you, Susan. Okay, that's it from me until 2021. We'll be back with more exciting guests and interesting conversations that I hope will inspire you to keep creating. We need what you have to offer. Until next time.